Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Fred Calkins, interim pastor for the Midland and Mount Pleasant Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now, here's Pastor Fred. Happy Sabbath. It's so good to be able to be with you again. As we get into the uh, message, let's pray. Lord, we want our minds to be open so we come to you and invite you to fill us with your spirit. Guide us with your eye. Help us to understand your love more fully for having been here today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our study in Hebrews chapter 11, and we've moved to Abraham, which gets, well, he gets a lot of real estate in Hebrews 11. He's a major character in Genesis. He gets 15 chapters of Genesis. He's definitely a very important person throughout Scripture. Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For, verse 10, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Abraham went when he was called. Obedience, it's a huge thing. God expects us to be obedient. He calls us to be obedient. Sometimes we really don't understand what obedience is because we think that we're obeying when we're slow about getting to what we were told to do. I told my children when they were young, slow obedience is disobedience. If you're told to do something and you say, well, in a bit, in a bit, I'll get to it. That's not honoring God or your parents. Abraham, when he was called, he went. I remember on my first job in the academy, when I was working maintenance department, it was suggested when the boss speaks, says jump, on the way up you ask him how high. And of course, as a 14-year-old, I thought that was cute. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. But that's the kind of obedience that Abraham had. When God said go, he didn't say, well, what's it going to cost me? What are you going to give me? What am I going to find when I get there? He said, I'm on my way. Now let me submit, that's the same kind of obedience that God's looking for us in these last days. I believe that from the story of Abraham, we can learn some significant lessons on faith. So that's the first lesson. Trust God's wisdom and do what he says to do. And know, know right up front, when God calls you to do something, it will involve sacrifice. There's no free ride. No free ride in this world, and there's no free ride to that world. The big deal is, though, 
as we said in our Sabbath school lesson, Jesus has paid the price and he gives us the ride to heaven. It was a very costly price. So as we're receiving this gift, we should not be surprised that, well, it'll just cost you everything you have. And that's a good thing. A part of serving God will lead us to sacrifice. We can expect that. So, back there in Genesis chapter 12, 13, we find that Abraham's father, Terah, joined him in responding to this call. Now, that's a very interesting dynamic going on here. As we search the scriptures and meditate on the story, we discover Abraham's worship of God was pure worship. He didn't dilute it with worshiping of idols. That's not so true of his father or his brothers. But Abraham was serious about making God his one and only. Now, as I mentioned that, remember, God doesn't share. You either serve God 100% or you're not serving him. So there was some serious problems with that other. Abraham comes from a big, complex family. His father had three sons named, and we have at least one daughter, Sarah, apparently from a different mother, which lets us know, oh, this is a complicated family, and we know today complicated families. I fear that they're getting just as complicated today as they were in the most complex biblical stories. But Abraham's brother, Haran, Terah's son, had a child named Lot. And Lot figures prominently in the story. And because Lot is not listed in Hebrews 11, I can share his story pretty generally. There's two other people who are part of this Abraham story who have their own section. So I'll only touch lightly on Sarah. And I'll touch lightly on Isaac. Very, very important, and we'll get to those in the next couple of weeks. But Abraham and Lot. Lot clearly recognized there was something good with Abraham, and he went with the family from Ur to this town that they named Haran in honor of the deceased son of Terah. Abram lingered for a time in Haran. As we read the story, it seems that Terah had traveled as far as he was able to go. He was old. How old? I'm not clear. I don't know how many years or weeks they spent there in Haran. But they lingered in Haran, and Abraham shared the gospel. Abraham increased his flocks and herds. But after Terah died, God said, long enough here, Abram, it's time for you to go to the place that I have prepared for you. So he headed on over to the land of Canaan. Lot said, I'm going with you. And there were others who Abram had met in Haran, in that area, who said, I want the worship that is being shared in your encampment 
I want to join you because I want to be connected to your God. May we have an influence in our communities that makes people want to worship the same God we worship. Powerful stuff. That was Abraham. Well, Lot got in trouble. And there's there's so many parts of the story, and we just had to figure out which ones we're going to tell when. Um, let's look at Lot for now. Lot had moved into Sodom. He When he and Abraham got back from Egypt, their flocks and herds had increased so much that they just could not occupy the same territory. And Abram, in his big-heartedness, in his generosity, in his trust in God, he said to Lot, you choose. Now remember, Abraham was the elder. Abraham was the leader. It would have been most appropriate for Lot to say, no, Uncle Abram, it's not for me to choose. You choose. I'm the secondary partner here. But no, Lot evidenced Typical human selfishness. He looked around and he said, that's the good land. I want that. And so he took that which looked like it was the most prosperous land. The Bible says that it was well watered like the Garden of Eden. Well, nobody alive then had seen the Garden of Eden, but they still had the stories. I believe Eden was retained on this earth up until the time of the flood, when God said, okay, time to take this away. So Noah would have seen it. Not been inside it, no, but would have observed the health and beauty of the plants in the Garden of Eden. So that story was continued. And it says, that valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was looked very lush and green. And Lot said, yeah, let me pasture my flocks down there where it's, they'll grow. That's where he went. Well, God sent two warnings to Lot and to his the territory that one didn't help the territory any. First one was when Chedorlaomer, you'll find this in chapter 14 of Genesis. Chedorlaomer with three allies came against the kings of the valley. Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were three other smaller towns. He came and wiped them out. He stole all the good stuff out of the towns. He took the people captive. He killed some people. And Chedorlaomer took them north to, the Bible calls it Dan. Well, now that's a preliminary name for another half a century. But he, he took them north. Somebody escaped from Chedorlaomer's attack and ran to Abram and said, your nephew Lot has been taken captive. Abram, in his interaction with the people, had some allies, and he told his allies, I'm going after my boy. He's kin to me. He's a brother to me. He's my brother's son. I'm going after him. Went in defense of Lot. And so his friends came with him, and they went and... The Bible depicts Abram as the military leader who plans and executes the attack against Chedorlaomer's forces. They had no idea they were going to be taken. 
General Elmer and his forces thought that they had wiped out the opposition. They thought they were secure and safe, and they were having revelry and fun times as they were looking through and sorting through and enjoying the various things that they had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram and his forces came against them from more than one side. They wiped them out. They killed all of General Elmer's forces. And he rescued Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot, and all these people. Interesting thing about this story, and we really need to look at that a little bit. To the victor belong the spoils. Abraham won this, and so everything that he won belonged to him. Now, he needed to give some to his allies, but he was the major winner of this, and it all belonged to him. We can see that he recognized it all belonged to him because he gave tithes of it all to Melchizedek. We read that in our uh, scripture reading already. Abram accepted that he was the victor and he had won this, but he didn't selfishly keep it to himself. No, he said to the prince of Sodom, who represented the other four cities that had been taken, he said, I'm not keeping anything for myself. I'm giving a tithe, which acknowledged his ownership, to Melchizedek. I'm giving the offerings, the extra stuff that belongs to me. I'm giving it to my allies because they earned it. But I'm not taking as much as a shoelace for myself. <laughs> he knew that God is able to provide for all of our needs. We've got to get that into our minds. We've got to understand this. We've got to let it impact us. As you follow the story of Abram, you discover that all of Abram's great wealth was not inherited by the 12 tribes of Israel. No. Isaac gave his wealth and property to his other son, the oldest son, Esau rather than Jacob. And God started with Jacob afresh and gave him wealth that matched that of Abram. God is able to provide for all of your needs. Pre-existing conditions, wealthy parents that give you an inheritance, that's not required for God to take care of us. We need to rest in that. Trust God. And if at times He calls you to Give it all away. Know that he'll take care of everything you need. Well, Abram was able to rescue Lot that first time, but he was not able to rescue him the second time. Get to chapter 18, we find the second crisis for Lot, and angels had to rescue him. God came, God spoke to Abram and told him that he was going to have a son by Sarah. Another part of the story that we'll get into later. But then God said, maybe I should tell Abram what's going on. And so he told Abram that he was coming down and doing a personal inspection to see if it was safe to leave Sodom and Gomorrah alive. And they found it was not. Interesting thing, when you get to Ezekiel, you find instead of 
listing as their primary sin homosexuality, it lists as their primary sin lack of care. They did not do the community services that they should have done. If we are not caring for our neighbors, we are doing the sin of Sodom. And we act as if the homosexuality was the big deal. It is a big deal, but it grew from the selfishness that they weren't caring for their neighbors. So we do see in that story with Lot, he was rescued. Yes, the angels took him by the hand, and they have the picture of the four members of Lot's family, Lot, his wife, and two daughters, and the angels are taking them by the hand and saying, we need to get out of here now because the fire from heaven is falling and going to destroy. And of course, Mrs. Lot turned back with longing, and she lost her life, turned into a pillar of salt. So we soon find Lot up in the mountains, looking on the scorched plain that had once been so beautiful. And we discover there that his daughters had seen too much wickedness, and so their morals had been impacted. Lesson for us. It's not safe for you to even look at sin. It's not safe for us to allow ourselves to read the stories, watch the movies, even read the newspaper accounts of all the wickedness that's going on around us because dwelling on Satan's tactics changes our mind, our ability to fix our minds on the good. We need to be very careful of the avenues to our soul. So, back to Abram. He made a lot of mistakes. And we sometimes try to be hard on him for his mistakes and pretend that, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have. Well, <laughs> don't be so sure. I like to think that if I was Adam in the garden, I would not have eaten the fruit, but I know how easily I am distracted. And I like to think that, well, if I was Abraham, I wouldn't have lied about my wife. Well, we need to recognize that by the grace of God, there we go and plead with God to put his spirit in us so that we can recognize the sophistries of Satan and take a stand for truth. One thing about Abram we see, though, his biggest mistakes tended to come when he was trying to help God out. <laughs> now, on the one side, that's really bad. But on the other, well, it's not as if he was rebelling and saying, God, I know what you want me to do, but I'm not going to do it. No, he's saying, God, I see what you're saying, and this looks like it's the way I can help you make sure this gets fulfilled. May we have the wisdom to trust God, to mean what he says, and to do, even though it may look contradictory and unclear, if we know the next step we're to take, simply take it for his glory and by his grace. So, the story of Sarah and the time in Egypt, I'm really mostly saving that for Sarah's story next time. But that sin with Hagar, it was a lack of trusting God when God said, I'm going to give you a son. And, of course, Sarah started it. We'll get into that more. But 
from a human perspective, it looked like this was a valid solution. But God had not instructed to go that way. May we have the grace and the patience to wait for God to make His way clear and do only that which He calls us to do. But the next lesson comes with Isaac as a 20-year-old boy. Maybe he was 19, but we're right at that point. Now, don't get confused about that. We see the pictures of Abraham and Isaac and that altar of a four-year-old or eight-year-old kid. No, this was a full-grown man. He was about 20 years old. He was old enough he could have said, old man, I ain't doing it. He could have been very blunt and clear to his dad saying, I hear what you're saying and it's not for me. But instead, we find him agreeing. Now this was, perhaps in all of the Bible, the hardest sacrifice, the hardest test that anyone was given. Abraham is called the friend of God. With good reason, he's called the friend of God. He was willing to connect and submit. Can you imagine the scene? We're in Genesis 22 now. Abraham is very much enjoying watching his young man grow up, teaching him how to take charge of the whole encampment. And Isaac is doing a good job as a manager, as the heir apparent. Isaac is the light of Sarah's life. She's 110 years old now. She's waited a long time for this kid. God gives Abraham a vision in the night and speaks to him and says to him, Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Now, isn't that a statement, your only son Isaac, when we know that there was an Ishmael who was 15 years older? Your only son Isaac, whom you love, yes, whom you love, and offer him on a place that I will show you. I can just imagine Abraham waking up and saying, did God really say that to me? What's going on here? He's told us not to kill, and that would be killing. The pagans around here are doing human sacrifices. That will look just like their human sacrifices, and that is so wrong. He'd been preaching against that for decades. But the voice of God was there clear in his mind. I can see him looking at Sarah and saying, should I wake her up and let her have a last hug with her boy? And he said, no, I don't dare do that. She might stop me from doing what God has said for me to do. Scary stuff. He woke up his son said, we need to go do a sacrifice. Isaac was very comfortable with that because he and his father had often gone to those altars that were now scattered all throughout the land of Canaan and done sacrifices. Wherever Abraham went, he built an altar. And on those altars, he offered sacrifices, especially, I believe, on Friday evenings. And I believe he had already learned that God was able to send fire from heaven to light the fire when it was necessary and appropriate. But at this point, that was not the usual practice. Because we find, a little deep, deeper in the story, they're carrying a firebox with them to provide the fire. 
And they're carrying kindling. So we find they leave early in the morning and they travel all day. Come night, the young men, the two servants that they have with him, and Isaac, they go to bed and sleep. But not Abraham. Abraham is not able to sleep. He spends the night on his knees saying, God, I don't understand what you're saying. It seems so wrong, but he commits himself again to do what God has said to do. Same thing the next day and night. Finally, on the third day, they get to insight of Mount Moriah, which is the place where the temple was built. So we're looking at Jerusalem. They get to the place, and it's insight. Abraham then says to his servants, you wait here with the stuff. My son and I will go and sacrifice. They go. On the way up the mountain, Isaac says, Dad, are we missing something? This is profound. It's worth reading it physically from the Scriptures. Verse 8. I already Genesis 22. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham did not know that God was going to provide a lamb at the top of the mountain for him to use on the altar instead of Isaac. That comes in later. But what Abraham did know, that every one of these lambs that had been sacrificed pointed forward to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Abraham pointed by faith to that. And you can just imagine his heart choked up He didn't have words to explain yet. But when they got up to the top of the mountain, repaired the altar, and laid the fire, then he had this talk with Isaac. We'll talk about that more when we get to the Isaac story. But both men made a sacrifice there. Abraham had to move ahead with this, trusting, oh, that's in Galatians 3, verse 7. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are part of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. Seems like there was another verse that says it even more clearly. Abraham went ahead trusting that God could raise up Isaac because both things had to be true. God said to me to take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him. And God has said to me that Isaac would be the progenitor of the Christ child and that he would also be the one through whom my descendants would be as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the sky. So he had to trust that God had a way of resolving this. And the Bible tells us that in a figure, as it were, God gave a new life to Isaac. Abraham had to have that faith, had to have that trust, had to move ahead with this, knowing that God is powerful and he could do what he said he would do. Thank God at his word. Um, 
After Sarah died, Abraham recognized he had a responsibility for Isaac. We'll talk more about that. But notice, here's a statement of trust. He sent Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac. He trusting Eliezer, even more he trusted that God would make the provision that was needed. And yes, he had some more children. We have a Keturah who comes into the picture. But Abraham was careful to give gifts to those children. They needed their inheritance, but he reserved the bulk of his inheritance for Isaac. He wanted to preserve that promised bloodline. A summary lesson. Abraham's travels were marked by these altars that he had built. Wherever he camped, he not only built an altar, but he visited with his neighbors and told them about the God who loves and saves. And so there were people who were committed to living for Jesus where he had been. Now catch what that means for us. God calls each one of us a missionary. Sometimes we like to think that it's the preacher's responsibility to share the gospel. And it is. But it's in reality the responsibility of everyone who has seen in Christ a Savior to tell others about the Savior. He does not merely say to the leaders of the church, go forth and talk about me. He says this to every one of us. And this is how Abraham lived his life. Abraham was a missionary in his setting, sharing Jesus. And if they had listened, it would have rescued that whole territory of people from the invasion that was going to have to come 400 years later when Israel left Egypt. But they didn't follow through with serving the Lord. God calls on us, and we're facing a crisis at the end of this age that is even bigger than the crisis that came to Canaan. Jesus is coming, and the vast majority of this world is going to die. They're not ready. Jesus says to us, All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm reading Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All power has been given to me. I am giving you that power now. Go. While you're going, that's an imperative go, that while you are living your life, make disciples of all nations. So a major part of our living is to share Jesus with those we come in contact with. It's a day-by-day experience. Some of you are doing that with your children in the home. Some of you are doing that in the workplace. Wherever God has you, that's where he wants you to be sharing him. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have been invited and yes, commanded by Jesus to share the gospel, even though we know that the vast majority of people will refuse to serve him. They need the opportunity to choose. This is God's purpose, to use us to share that choice with the people we come in contact with. Amen.
You've been listening to Fred Calkins, Interim Pastor for the Midland and Mount Pleasant Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed his sermon, why not visit one of his churches? The Midland Church is located at 2420 East Ashman Street, Midland, Michigan, and their church service begins at 1045 a.m. And the Mount Pleasant Church is located at 1730 East Pickard Road, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.